0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am joined today by Megan, Mary, and Liz. Hello, ladies. Hey. Our topic is going to be damages, particularly compensatory damages, and that would be as opposed to punitive damages, which would be a whole another discussion. But today, what I really wanted to ask questions about and discuss was how to present damages, what they are, and the best way to invoke feelings from the jury that would allow them to award compensatory damages. So I want to take a second to define what I mean by damages, because we throw this term around. It's a very broad term. But in our practice, damages can be a number of economic or non-economic harms or losses. So for example, an economic loss would be payments that had to be made and bills that had to be paid for medical expenses. Anything that would be incurred as a result of an injury that the plaintiff or our client is responsible for. Another economic loss is lost wages. So if our client is injured to the extent that he or she can't work and loses pay or loses the ability to earn A living for their family that's also considered a loss that the jury can compensate our plaintiff for. Those are kind of the easy ones. You can present a bill from a hospital or a physician. You can show a tax record where money was made the year before the accident and not as much or nothing was made after the accident. Those are things that are tangible that we can write on a board that we can show a jury. So those are really what we consider to be the easy ones. The harder ones, as you all know, are the non-economic damages. And we get a little bit of guidance from our jury instructions on what non-economic loss is or non-economic damages, particularly, for some reason, it is well-defined in the medical malpractice jury instruction 2105. And it's actually a definition of non-economic damages. And I'll just read a few of these categories, and then I want to open a discussion about how to find witnesses or to find evidence to help us bring these words to life for the jury. So non-economic damages are those damages arising from non-pecuniary harm. And just broadly, pecuniary is the same thing as the economic losses that I talked about earlier, but non-pecuniary harm such as pain, suffering, mental anguish, inconvenience, physical impairment, disfigurement, and loss of capacity to enjoy life. In addition to those damages that can happen directly to our plaintiff, we can also talk about what's known as loss of consortium, which is a damage or an injury to a spousal relationship. A spouse doesn't have to be physically injured to have a claim, but the loss of the typical normal relationship is considered uh, compensable for the non-physically injured spouse. So those are broad categories. And I think you all will agree that we spend a lot of time, and rightfully so, envisioning and bringing to life what these damages are and how we can encourage and educate a jury to put a number, to put a value to those damages. So let's start with Megan. What do you find yourself thinking about as far as actual evidence is concerned
2: to present on damages like this? So I think that almost every single part of your case can be... Influential to the amount of non economic damages that you're getting and that you're asking for. If you're at trial, I think that the way that your witness comes across, the questions that you're asking to other witnesses, every single piece of that is playing into a story about how your client's life is different now since whatever caused the lawsuit. So I think in that respect, pretty much everything you do will play into the story that you're spinning and the non economic damages that you're getting. I was kind of surprised like when I first started practicing law about the fact that most of the damages that we end up getting our clients are non-economic. I think the conception may be that economic damage is what matters most and that's not actually true. I think you're right. The economic damages are
1: fixed. They are what they are. the medical bill, the lost wages. and oftentimes as a matter of strategy, We choose not even to submit the bills or the lost wages to the jury because many people believe that they can anchor the verdict or keep the verdict down. But Megan, I think you're absolutely right. Every witness can be, and really we should spend time figuring out how to make every witness a damaged witness. There's lots written on this about how to create damage testimony from pretty much any witness that's on the stand and there should be at least one damage witness every day of trial i think it should be as many as you could possibly get but mary who can you think of maybe in a non-traditional sense could make a good damage witness i was thinking a couple things amy while you
3: were talking about non-economic damages One is the fact that our clients are permanently injured, and a lot of times in our cases, treatment is ongoing, but progress has plateaued for our clients. We know exactly where they stand in terms of the medical treatment that they might need. We have insurance companies on the other side of our cases who line item dates of treatment and medical bills. That's the value they place on the case. So non-economic damages are I think our biggest burden and also the most helpful to our case, because as you said, we're telling a group of strangers, a group of 12 people, what is the impact, the pain, suffering and loss of capacity to enjoy life? How are we supposed to put that into words? A couple months ago in jury selection, there was a case that was getting tried that was kind of a partner case to ours and jury selection was happening in that case and I was attending that because it was a similar fact pattern. And the client in that case had a TBI or a traumatic brain injury. And a huge part of the case had to do with the non-economic damages, what this person now faced as a result of that. And one of the members of the panel stands up, as the attorneys are talking about, you know, it involves a TBI and brain damage. Has anyone ever had brain damage and things like that? And this woman stands up on the panel and was very honest and said, I can't be on this jury because I suffered from a TBI a couple years ago and everybody thinks I'm fine and I'm not. And you look at me and you think I'm okay, but the light's off. Wow. The light's not on and it never will be. And my life has changed forever. And it was a great outcome for that plaintiff in that lawsuit. I couldn't have imagined as a plaintiff's attorney what you could ask for as a better explanation. You know, an attorney can argue that in closing argument. They can have the plaintiff describe it. But having somebody who has absolutely no connection to the plaintiff or the parties in the lawsuit stand up and say how much non-economic damage there is that relates specifically to your own client's injury, it was so impactful. And I have to believe that it played a A large role in the jurors minds because she looked healthy. She looked healthy. She looked like she was doing fine. And yet she's sitting there talking about how her life has been flipped upside down as her experience. Maybe it's not such a bad thing to ask about in jury selection, because you might get the one juror who can stand up and talk about non-economic damages for you, which is great.
1: The goal for damages in my mind is not to say things like my back hurts or I can't do what I used to do. That doesn't tell me anything. My back hurts sometimes. Half the people on the jury panel's back hurts sometimes, or maybe every day, and they're not getting paid for it. So what do we do to make a jury empathize? Not sympathize. I don't want sympathy. My client doesn't want sympathy. I need the jury to understand what my client's going through. And Mary, your example of the panelist, I was going to say, veneer person. But yeah, I never know how to say that word. Juror. Yes. <laughs> that person was a gift. I mean, honestly, yes. you're so lucky. Right. <laughs> would never well, and to
2: the thing with that situation is that even if they're not ultimately chosen to the jury, now the people who ultimately Absolutely. will be on the jury heard that and Absolutely. that will influence them. Like hearing the lights are
3: off. That is, you feel that in your gut when you hear someone right. stand up in a big room of strangers and say that.
1: We have to tell stories or have our family members, healthcare providers, witnesses, clients, whoever, tell stories. What does it mean to be in pain? What does it mean not to be able to do the things that you did before? What does it mean for the light to be out? So, Liz, How have you found in your cases to be able to really bring these words to life? What
0: I have found is the best way to present these types of damages is to prepare family members and loved ones. Obviously, we prep our clients for this and we prep them in deposition so they understand what questions are going to come forward. They understand how to put that in a way that will speak not only to the defense attorney, hopefully, but the defense attorney will then understand that this is what is going to speak to a jury. What we tell clients is that instead of explaining what the specific injury is, give a concrete example. This is what I used to do, but I can no longer do this. And I had a client recently, he pulled this out of nowhere when he was talking about how this nerve injury has affected him now. He talked about how, you know, I really love being able to toss around a baseball with my son and he's a teenager, and as he's getting older, it's getting harder and harder to play with him and connect with him, but tossing the ball around with his old man was what we did, but now that I don't have control over my hand, I can't do that with him anymore. This injury has taken that from me, taken that bond that I've had with my son, and that was something he did not tell me in prep. He came up with it on the fly, and I thought that was a great example. However, as well as we can prep clients, Really, the best testimony is going to come from loved ones who have seen them before and who have seen them after their injury. And that's because I think that clients and people in general, when we have something bad happen to us and we have something taken away, whether it's a physical ability or some sort of mental ability, if it's a TBI, we have to find a way to cope with that. And so we try to convince ourselves it's not that bad. And that is really the only way that you can get up every morning, especially if we have clients who are in wheelchairs who no longer have the ability to walk or be able to care for themselves independently. Convincing themselves that it's not that bad is how they wake up in the morning. So what we need is their loved ones to come in and say, no, actually it is that bad. And let me tell you why. And they're the ones who are going to be able to say... My husband, my son, my sister, whoever it is, was able to do all of these things before. She was able to dance. He was able to go fishing. But now, now he can't. And it sort of goes to your example of the lights out, Mary. They understand that they're still physically here, but they're not where they used to be. And the number of cases we have where family members are called in as fact witnesses Just to testify to, you know, what did the doctor say or what did you see after the accident? Things like that. They're asked about the facts, but we always prepare them to be damages witnesses. And I had this happen recently in a deposition where I was preparing the witness and I said, you know, let's run through the facts. Okay, we got the facts down. And we spent probably three quarters of that deposition prep talking about damages even though the defense attorney didn't ask a single damages question. Mm -hmm. And that's because when it became my turn to ask questions, I wanted to make sure that that defense attorney understood and that she could then tell her client, hey, this is how badly this person is injured. You can't just look at a black and white page with all these numbers and think that you understand her injury. And This client, she's a tough lady and she was really trying to tough it out in her deposition and she doesn't want people to feel sorry for her. And so her husband came in and he did a great job of saying she used to have all of this independence. I've known her for 10 years. She was able to do all of these things. She can't now. And it's embarrassing for her and she doesn't want to talk about it, but I'll talk about it because you took this from my wife. So as great of a job as clients can do advocating for themselves, ultimately, I think the best damages, non-economic damages witnesses are going to be their loved ones who know them best and who want to see the best for them. And you have to invest
3: the time. It takes probably 45 minutes to an hour just to get somebody comfortable enough to be vulnerable and share a story with you that speaks to a non-economic damage as a result of, you know, the negligence that occurred I had never spent that much time with clients just talking to them and hearing stories. And by the time trial was coming and I was going to put the witnesses on, our clients on, number one, I felt a lot closer to them and comfortable to ask the really hard questions because they trusted me because I spent the time with them. But number two, I just had such a deeper understanding of what the loss meant to them. And Liz, something that you just said is having your own preparation with your client and your client's depot. I think I'm going to start doing that, what you were talking about, Liz, because then when you leave the depot and they don't ask the questions, they're never going to value the case in the way that you need them to. Because in your mind, you know how significant the non-economic damages are. You can save some stuff for trial, but putting it all out on the table so the other lawyer has an idea of what's really going on. To your point, that's such a good idea, and I'm definitely going to use that going forward because I used to think, well, it's their depot, they get to ask the questions, but I think some of the follow-up will not allow the other attorney to skim over it or ask the question of, well, you can still do this, right? You can still wake up in the morning. You're not in a wheelchair. You can still walk around. You drove here, right? You were in a car, and you were able to make it here okay. You know, those sort of questions that just get... Uh, Sure. Yes. Okay. Very frustrated. Yes or no answers. It's kind of nice to have a follow-up to talk about what's not so normal anymore, especially when clients are nervous and what's their new normal is almost so ingrained as their new normal that they'll say, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And then when you ask them, you know, if they need help getting dressed in the morning, you're like, well, that's not really normal. People don't normally have to have help to do the things that you need help with. So it is important to bring that out.
0: Sometimes I like to do what we've been talking about, where we talk about the damages, even if the defense attorney doesn't really care. Maybe I don't think that they'll genuinely understand, even if we get it on the record. But it makes the client feel better. It makes the client know that you see them and that you're fighting for them and that they get the opportunity to tell the defendant that hurt them through their lawyer but they get the opportunity to speak their piece to the defendant that hurt them. And that is a really valuable way to build the relationship with the client if you end up going to settlement or if you end up going to a jury trial.
2: Like Mary said, once you know their stories and build that relationship, like you said, Liz, then you know the questions to ask, whether it's in a deposition or at trial. You know the stories and you can prompt those stories or elicit some of that testimony with the right questions. And if you don't take the time and really get to know these witnesses and your client, then you don't really know what are going to be the powerful questions to ask. And I think another powerful thing about these loved ones damages testimony is that the defense kind of knows how to poke holes in the client's own testimony about their damages, but what are they going to say to a loved one who says our relationship isn't the same anymore? Are they going to say, no, you're lying? It's a powerful tool that I don't think can be really diminished as much. I want to go back,
1: Liz, to a couple of things that you said a moment ago. The first was you've said a couple of times what was taken away. And this is an important distinction between a loss and something that was taken away. And we've traditionally talked about harms and losses, harms and losses. What have you lost? And it's true, they've lost something, but it's an important distinction to make, especially in front of a jury. My client didn't lose anything. That sounds like he or she literally was careless and lost something. What we're talking about is what the defendant's actions did that caused good things in my client's life to be taken away. And I think that's a really important point that I know I can do better at. Uh, It's sort of a shortcut to say a loss, but it truly is something that was taken away. The other thing was the story about playing baseball. And if our listeners take anything away from the discussion today, it's you have to paint a picture. If you had said, and part of your testimony out of that client was, I have pain in my hand. It doesn't work right. There's a nerve damage. And let's say you had your expert or the treating physician talk about nerve damage in a very clinical way and range of motion. Even Maybe you had a physical therapist testify, which usually are pretty good witnesses. But all the jury knows is that your client's hand doesn't work right. I'm going to promise you they don't care that much. I can't even blame them because their hands work fine, and there's no context to your hand not working right. Maybe they've had a little bit of pain in their life, maybe they got a little bit of arthritis, but you know, you're fine. You paint a picture where you've got a dad and a son who used to spend time together playing baseball in the backyard. Okay, everyone in this room has a visual of that, right? And all of a sudden you see it, And if you see it, you're that much closer to feeling it, to feeling how that's been taken away. And it gave me goosebumps, just your story about it. And the witness isn't there. I haven't been listening to this testimony all week. I'm not on the jury. But all of a sudden, I feel that. And I really feel badly about that being taken away from my client, but also his son, who's not party, But all of a sudden, that family has now been affected. So you can imagine how many opportunities there are to tell those stories. The defense is terrified of these stories. And if you spring these stories on them at trial, that can work. But there's no substitute for preparation. And I can tell you that I've been in trial, and, man, we ask really hard things of our clients To go back in time, to relive the experience, to focus and fixate on the experience, and to talk about it in public at trial. And I've had a client who I've spent hours with talking about this was a death case. Her adult son had been killed. And she gets on the stand and she freezes and her mind goes blank and she can't think of any stories. And I warned her about that. And I said, when I ask you this question, look at me. Look at me because we're looking at each other right now and all you're doing is telling me this story. All you're doing is telling me about your son and what you miss about your son. And if you haven't established that rapport with your client, it's really hard to have that person feel comfortable telling this awful story about these awful things that have been taken away from her or him in front of strangers even if they're the last person to testify so I think it's so important to Mary as you say build that trust take that time pull out those stories and I tell my clients this is an awful thing I'm asking you to do You can be real upset with me about this. And I hate it that I have to be the one to make you think about these things that make you sad or upset. But it's part of what we have to do to get justice.
2: Just a few minutes before we started this recording, I got out of a deposition and our client and I had about an hour long phone call yesterday to prepare for her deposition. And during the phone call, she got pretty emotional with me about how her adult son had died about a year prior to the accident. So it was unrelated, but it was still really hard for her and she was very emotional about it. In the deposition today, the defense counsel spent so long going over her pain with her very clinically. Mm -hmm. Exactly where did you feel the pain? On the top of your leg, on the side of your leg? What did it feel like? Was it tingling, numbness, words that are not really tied to any specific, it's tied to a sensation, but it's a little less concrete. And it's very clinical, felt very distant. And it wasn't until the very end of this conversation, she kind of broke down and teared up and said, I've been describing this to you, but like the worst part is that I can't play with my grandbabies anymore. And my grandbabies come over and they wonder why Grammy can't get off the bed and play with them anymore. And To me, having this background knowledge of the story of her son passing away made that testimony more impactful to me because her son's gone. All she has left is these grandbabies Mm. and she can't play with them anymore. So that kind of prompted me to ask that follow-up question and it made the testimony so much more meaningful than it was earlier just about describing numbness and tingling and where exactly on your body that is. Yeah, and ask yourself why the defendants spend time on those questions. Sure. Because
1: they're hoping that's all they ever get out of these clients or all that the client is ever going to say. Again, on the storytelling, let's take, for example, someone who's in a wheelchair due to the negligence of a healthcare provider or a product manufacturer or a negligent driver or whatever it is. This person's in a wheelchair. So, okay, Liz, your client's in a wheelchair. And it's pretty obvious that that's a terrible position to be in, particularly at someone else's hands. What would you encourage that person to talk about to allow a visualization to the jury about what is so bad about being in a wheelchair other than the obvious fact that they can't walk?
0: For our clients that are in wheelchairs or have any other injury that requires them to rely on some sort of equipment... The loss of independence, it cannot be overstated how important the loss of independence is. That is something that we all value, we all understand, and we all want to keep. And we take for granted. And we take for granted. That is something that, until I started working in this job, the ability to get up in the morning and button my own shirt and tie my own shoelaces. And move. And move. Something I've never really thought about until... I started in this job and realized how many people have lost that ability and how much that hurts them. And I think about this one client you had, Amy, and I flew down to meet this woman and we could not meet in an office because driving was so hard for her. She was not able to do it. She relied on someone else. And so I had to drive to her house and the entire time I was so annoyed. I've already flown all this way out here. Now I got to drive to this person's house and I pull up and I walk into her home and her couch is covered in towels. And I'm thinking, that's weird. And she explains to me, I cover my couch in towels because this product hurt me so bad. One, I can't control my bladder. I don't know when I'm going to urinate on myself. And two, because of this product, I can't move fast enough to the bathroom. She's a young woman. She was not old. And she said that her pride kept her from wearing diapers. But she just stays at home. And as I drove myself away, drove myself to a hotel, was able to get to a bathroom, whatever I needed to do, I just thought about how terrible I felt for this woman. And I knew that when we did the deposition, she had someone prepared to bring her to the office, the defense attorney's office, and that defense attorney was gonna talk to her, and that defense attorney was never going to see inside this woman's house and see the couch covered in towels, And so that was something I had to bring out myself. But when you think about folks like that, and she wasn't in a wheelchair, but this is something that people who are in wheelchairs experience is just the inability to take care of themselves and always having to rely on people and feeling like a burden.
2: I think the loss of independence is very tied to a loss of pride, and that's hard.
1: 100%. Yeah, and think about our society. No one tells us what to do. We're entirely independent. We do whatever we wanna do, blah, blah, blah. It's like a God-given right for an American citizen to have freedom. And you are damaged in such a way that you can't even get yourself to the bathroom. You can't get yourself out of a burning building. Is there anything more terrifying than that? Amy, when you talked about visualizing,
3: as soon as Liz told that story, I felt completely different about, right. you know, the client circumstance and what the damage actually is. I worked on a case a couple of years ago and a parent was giving a deposition on behalf of their minor child who was in braces on his legs. They were talking about how everybody acknowledges the fact that her son has issues in the classroom. So the whole class kind of does things the way that this one student does and it's fun because they're little. But then what happens is the child gets older and then realizes the deficit and that they need to sit out when the other kids get to run. They can't play sports. They can't ride bikes. They can't go to the park with their friends. They can't attend birthday parties where the main activity is a bounce house or anything physical, no roller skating, you know, no riding scooters with friends. She laid it all out for all of the things that he can't do and won't ever be able to do. And it gave me such a better understanding of the position. Quite frankly, there's no better person who can speak to what a child's life is going to be like than their own parent. But it really painted a clear picture for me of her fears as a mother, but also what the child's going to be facing. And I remember about a year ago, I was on the phone with a claims adjuster. And we all know those phone calls can be, they can be really short (laughs) a lot of times. (laughs) And it was a case that this adjuster kept contacting me, different case than what I was just talking about, but she kept contacting me saying, we really want to get it resolved. We really want to get it resolved. We really want to get it resolved. And I just kept saying, you don't though, because you know, you're at this number and you don't want to get it resolved. If you're at this number and you stay, it's not going to get resolved. The next call you get from me will be I'm filing suit. And finally, the last time that she called me, I just answered the phone and said, look, here's my client's circumstances. And I just laid out what a day in the life of my client was. And I said, unless you have some magic words to tell them uh, as to why they need to come off the number they're at, we can't keep talking. There's no point in us to continue talking. So do you have any magic words for me to tell my client? And the other end of the line was just silent. And I was like, exactly. I went, that's (laughs) how I feel. And you know we filed suit. It ended up okay for my client, but it's just is so important to wrap someone's head around, especially the people who have checkbooks who are you know making the decision, to get them to feel the loss. And
1: quite frankly, sometimes they never will. So when I think about stories, it's important for the visual, but really the home run on these stories, and by home run I just mean the best way to really just go straight into the heart of the jury is to tell one of these stories that you know they're going to feel. Because we're universally embarrassed by things like bowel and bladder incontinence or having to wear a diaper. We're universally scared by things like I can't take care of myself or I have to be dependent on someone. And those are the stories that, again, are so hard to bring up to your client to say, look, you're going to have to tell me about how your wife has to do your bowel prep. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's something that this jury has to understand. Now, in addition, though, we've talked a lot about our clients and family members and things like that. How, though, can we get other witnesses? Because we've talked about how we need at least one a day in trial. I like to see more if possible. What about treating physicians? Don't ever miss the opportunity to have a treating physician talk about what is actually wrong with your client.
0: This is probably one of my favorite treating physician stories. And again, it happened completely out of the blue on the witness stand. He had never done this before. He pulled it out for the first time at trial, and it was brilliant. But it was a case where our client had suffered a very serious knee injury. In this particular case, she tore in one fell swoop, tore her ACL, her MCL, and her PCL all at the same time. And if you don't know what those are, those are all your ligaments in your knees. Basically, it snapped backwards like she was a flamingo. And that's one thing to try to explain that and say those words to a jury. But what the treating doc in this case did was he got up there and he brought a model knee. He had a little skeleton. Nice. My co-counsel at the time said, you know, doctor, can you show us the mechanism of the injury and Doctor goes, Yeah, sure. Let me pull out my model. And he proceeds to snap that knee as hard as he can. And he goes, But this isn't what her knee looked like because if I showed you what her knee did, I would break my model. And these are expensive. I don't want to do that. And the entire jury, all of them, just you could see how physically repulsed they were by the thought of your knee snapping back. And it was loud in the court. Like he put it up to the microphone and snapped that thing as hard as he could. And it made the jury realize that no matter how great our client looks today, on the day of her injury, she was in such intense pain. No amount of money you could not pay someone enough money mm-hmm. to snap their knee. To like volunteer that. For that. I'm gripping right. my knee
3: as you're talking about this <laughs> right. Time,
0: right? It was a treating doc, and that was a gift from him. But when you talk about you know, treating doctors giving you damages testimony, obviously he talked about the type of the injury and the permanency of the injury and what type of rehabilitation she was going to do. But that one moment where he just showed the excruciating level of pain our client went through, that was gold.
2: Another important reason to have treating doctor damage testimony is because I think a lot of jurors need both pieces. They need to hear the story and they need to hear the medical terms because I think there are some people who will be really swayed by a story about the difference in lifestyle changes. And there's some people who are saying, yeah, but what was the diagnosis? And sometimes having that extra damage witness that's a treating doctor to say those technical terms, even if they don't understand what it means, it kind of impresses upon the jury that this was serious.
1: I think that's a great point because there'll be people on the jury who will feel perhaps a little manipulated by some stories or some really thick storytelling, they might be on guard for that. And I think, Megan, that's a really good point. That particular person may need to see the clinical part of it as well. And that's what's great about treating physicians is they can do both parts. We have to be careful not to let a treating physician only be clinical and really only talk about the medical diagnosis. And that really tends to happen because that's what they do all day long. There are many ways to tell a visual story. One is just words that are very descriptive. The other is actual demonstrative evidence. And one of the best things that I've been able to have in trials is imaging whether it's pins and rods to fix a broken bone or in a person's back, or I've had many cases, unfortunately, with missed tumors on scans that the radiologist just misses and I can put it up on the screen and by golly, even the jury can see it. And if the jury can see it, and they're not a trained medical professional, much less a board-certified radiologist. Right. Then how on earth are they going to believe it was okay for somebody whose actual job it was to see it, not to see it?
3: There was a treating physician in a case where my client's face was crushed in an accident. And the treating physician only gave me about 10 minutes to speak with her prior to the deposition. Like in the 10 minutes prior to the deposition beginning. So it was a pretty rushed conversation, but I just had a really good feeling about her and she seemed like a very straight shooter. She wasn't going to let anybody try to waver on what was in her records and her records. You can't argue that, you know, my client's face wasn't smashed as a result of this crash. And so after I was done asking my questions, which I included The images of my client's face, had the doctor specifically go through show where all of the broken bones are in her face, the function of each of the bones, how her face was sunken in, you know, go into detail about what these images showed and then showed the post-surgical imaging with the rods and hardware in her face. And I was finishing up and the other attorney, I was thinking, man, you know, this went really well. And the other attorney starts asking questions about it's healed. It's healed. It's healed. Now it healed. And she had a great outcome because you're a good surgeon. And she wasn't complaining to you about, you know, how it went. And this treating physician just paused and went, I really just need to clear something up here. She has permanent deformity in her face now. And now she's subject to, if she gets hit again in that spot, it's done. The hardware is going to mess up her face even more. She can't have another surgery like this. Now she's subject to infection. The metal that's in her face, it's only been this long. And a lot of times this is what happens with infections. If the client has an adverse reaction, they have to come back in. And she goes off on this long <laughs> spiel about permanent deformity and you know how serious of a surgery it is and not to write it off just because she has a good patient outcome. And he finished asking his questions right after that. And I just said, you know, nope, I got nothing else. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And and it was a great way. And it even taught me something new, which is a healing bone doesn't mean there's no more damage. It just means that luckily we have medical care for doctors who can have a surgery so you don't have to walk around with broken bones in your face, you know. So it helped me use imaging to tell the story, use visuals, and also learning For future depositions where that happens. What happens in a lot of our cases is that by the time the trial rolls around, our
0: client has gotten better. I mean, time heals a lot of things. But what the treating physician can do and will have, I think, quite a bit of credibility with the jury is talking about the uncertainty of the future, the fear of the future. Sure, Mm -hmm. the client, the plaintiff looks great right now, but what happens when she gets early onset arthritis? What happens when she gets smacked in the face again or gets an infection? And she has to live with this constant fear. And sometimes what I've found is physicians haven't told their patient all of the possible bad outcomes yet. It's hard to have that conversation. Yeah, I'm not blaming physicians for not having the doom and gloom conversation, they want their patient to feel good. And hopefully, you know, having a positive attitude will help with their rehabilitation. I've heard that. But sometimes in a deposition where they talk about, here's the laundry list of all the things that could go wrong. And then you have to tell your client, by the way, this might happen, or you have a shortened life expectancy, or you are at risk for developing this type of injury in the future. All of a sudden, the jury now understands, even though this person looks good in front of me right now, That might not be the case in 10, 15 years. And we can't come back in 10 and 15 years and say, hey, jury, you awarded this much when we first came to you. Well, it turns out everything's gone bad now. Can we have more? No, this is our one shot. And so the jury, I think most jurors are very cognizant of that fact as long as it is presented to them and will take that into consideration when awarding a verdict. Exactly.
1: Well, ladies, we've had a very important discussion today on non-economic damages and the best way to teach a jury things about pain and suffering and mental anguish and inconvenience and all those things that our jury instructions allow our jury to compensate our clients for. It strikes me, however, that we really didn't talk much about economic damages, and perhaps we can save that for another episode where we can discuss economists and life care plans and things like that. So thank you all very much today for what I consider to be a very compelling discussion. And as many years as I've done this, I am always love walking away from our discussion thinking about things differently and how to do things better for our clients. So thank you all very much. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Please feel free to reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law and have a great day. Amy, Liz,
0: Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, Check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in
2: Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today.